Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Sports Like MD's podcast. This is episode number 30. We have an interview. 30, 30. Yes. We're excited. Armin and I, we have an interview today. Yes, we do. A very, very special guest. Former soccer pro, Diana Redman. She was a member of the Israeli national soccer team. And uh, she is now the founder of a really great organization dedicated to mental performance consulting and with a special interest in perinatal consulting for uh, athletes uh, who want to get pregnant, uh, want to start planning a family and, uh, and having a family and want to be able to, to bounce back from their pregnancy in the most successful way. Yeah, and this podcast isn't just for female athletes, it's for all athletes. We're also going to talk about the WNBA. They have a new collective bargaining agreement, which has a specific section in there for family planning and for pregnancy. So we're going to dive deep into this topic. Yeah, because honestly, it's been a long time coming. You know, we got to take care of our female athletes better. So yeah, we're going to talk all about that. All right. Let's have some fun. Thanks for tuning in. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Here we go. And again, and another one. Ooh, so today we have a special interview, and I finally figured out how to get better quality with the interviews. So this one's going to be nice. Trust me. We'll we'll see. We'll let the audience decide. Um, Man, so it has been, what is it, like uh, day number 14 of uh, of quarantine, COVID-19? Yeah. We're out here in Los Angeles, and we got the stay-at-home orders. Disinfecting, like Listerine. How do you like, um, so you're doing telepsychiatry now. I am. How's that experience been? Yeah, yeah. In my practice, I, I you know, I, I you know, of course, we have to come up with a, a catchy uh, name for it. We call it virtual office visits, right? So um, It's like you're still in the office. Yeah, I mean, right there, right there. Still connected. Um, it's actually, um, it was a pivot that we had to take, but one that we were very prepared for. I already had a pro account with Zoom. You know, Zoom has the the HIPAA compliant software. Yes, I really like Zoom. I just started using it the last couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, it's really good. It's very, it's, it's great. It's actually very efficient, user-friendly. And, you know, being in mental health, you know, we're in the unique position to transform our services pretty seamlessly despite, you know, this crisis you know, so yeah, I think yeah. psychiatry. It's fortunate because we can do a lot of our job through video. Now, it's been an adjustment, I think, to do a patient interview via teleconference, via like a Skype or a FaceTime. That's what Zoom is, video chat. But I think it's so much better than a telephone call. Being able oh, to, yeah. to visualize yeah. an individual, mm-hmm. see their mannerisms, their facial expressions, it helps a lot, and it helps the connection. Helps you feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It gives you more of a personalized approach when you can look the individual in their eyes. Oh, not, yeah. not to mention, we got to fill out that mental status exam. So it's actually, and I've been working with a lot of adolescents and, and college-age kids, and it's easy for them to do. It fits together like peanut butter and jelly. These, these younger kids, have, and J. they've grown up with the, the technology, so it's, it's easy for them to hop on their laptop, on their bed or their iPhone, and just chat away. So... How's your experience? It works. No, it works. How's your experience been with the the older generation? Uh, 
Yeah. No, well, I mean, most people 40 and under pretty much grew up with, you know, computers, uh, you know, the internet to some extent. So, yeah, honestly, man, um, I mean, my practice is almost exclusively millennials. Uh, You have a a couple of uh, outliers there, but it's been great. It's been a, a, it's been for me, it actually has been a bit of an adjustment just because you're right. It, it is much better than the phone. Um, still different than being face to face. You know, it's, it's not quite the same. No. Um, so I'm, I'm making an adjustment, but you know, you're right. Just having that affect, right. The, the ability to, you know, see someone's facial expressions and you know, how, what you're saying to them, how they react. Makes them, yeah. It makes them feel, feel and and yeah yeah so telepsychiatry it's definitely been a a new thing that we're experiencing how how have you been spending this 14-day quarantine because you're doing a lot of work from home i know Mm -hmm. i know you're still going to the office a few days a week what's what's your experience been like i don't know i i guess yeah it's actually been an adjustment i'm not gonna i'm not gonna front like it's been it's been tough because it's like i like kind of getting into a rhythm you know, I like kind of knowing what my process is going to be, uh, having something reliable in terms of, you know, how to allocate my time and, you know, where I'm going to do things, how I'm going to do things and, and all of that. And, you know, you develop a system. Yeah, dri- and, dr- like driving in the work, seeing your patients. No, the whole home. thing, you know, and, and uh, that's how you obviously you get momentum and you and you you know able to do things more efficiently is by having you know a reliable system in place. So this whole thing has uh, obviously changed everything in terms of my process, and uh, I've noticed that I've had to completely rethink how I go about doing things. You know, and so some of my listeners may may know that I kind of wear two hats. You know, I have uh, a private practice, um, you know, kind of more like wellness focused in West LA. And then, you know, I also, I work with Department of Mental Health LA County and see, uh, you know, patients in one of their South LA clinics, uh, South Central. And that particular location, because we don't really have like the, the technology in place to execute like a, an actual like telehealth service to any like significant degree at this point, we're really un- unfortunately confined to doing phone consultations, and that's been really tough. It's been really tough because you know a lot of our clients down there, you know, if they're not homeless, you know, have you know somewhat unstable living conditions, so it's hard to keep track of them. Clinic situation, clinic environment is almost like essential for that population. I'm starting to realize because they're you know, they're kind of all over the place. It's hard for them to just like keep track of, of appointments generally. So without that structure, right, provided by the staff, you know, and kind of escorting them and letting, giving them mm-hmm. reminders and all the things and kind of like being able to meet them and see them and, you just, know, chaperone them. Just being and, able to, for them to show up to their appointments and have the whole that thing. structure is, is And they, and is they themselves have, have, you know, obviously had their own process, you know, that they're, they're now having to adjust to, you know, and it, it's really hard for everybody. And the whole issue of this COVID nineteen thing that you know some people have articulated uh, on um, you know the national platform, but 
others uh, seem to to not have as as much insight into is that I mean this thing you know it it can, it can really you know can really change the, the landscape of things you yeah. know and we're 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 all going to have to to really be able to uh, to adjust in many different ways you know to to a new a new normal yeah, a new absolutely normal. yeah so um, I could I think in the future with regards to our field and all medical fields it's going to move more towards tele in the future meaning video chats Ideally, you still have that face-to-face, in-person contact with a, with a patient, with an individual, at least one time during the treatment process. But I think that's the future. Maybe in a county system where in, your individuals, your clients aren't, don't have computers, don't even have smartphones. Maybe there's a dedicated. They still come to the office. There's a dedicated room or rooms they can go into where a practitioner will be on the screen, yeah, video chatting from either their home or another office. Um, and during a situation like this. If you can have a counter, even if you're you're in the same building but you're separated, that's better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea, and you know we're, we're going to need that kind of vision, you know, and 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 those those kinds of out of the box ideas in order to to solve the challenges because what lies ahead is going to be all about like critical thinking and problem solving and in terms of being able to kind of quickly adapt to these kinds of outbreaks and exposures in the future, um, you know, so that the economy isn't so heavily impacted. I think if any large system, government as well, but if any large system should be prepared for worst case scenario, it should be, I would say the hospital system, they should have stockpiles of PPE, personal protective equipment, they should be ready for these types of worst case scenarios and, and the government as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's uh, wow, man, it's a uh, hey, moment of mindfulness, <laughs> yeah, right? Moment yeah. of mindfulness. Now we had to, we had to, we had to just in the, in the midst of, of all that's happening and, and certainly the uncertainty that lies ahead. Um, it was important that, that we took some time to, to just uh, just speak about it, and it's on everyone's minds. Yeah, our right? perspective. We on, understand that on how the the mental health treatment or the the vehicle of mental health treatment has changed and what's to come. So let's get back into today's topic. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Pregnancy and the that's athlete. right athletes and yeah and and families. Right, it's about it's about you know family planning. It's about being able to to have children and and have the the team support that desire yeah. you know not just the team support your teammates support your coaches support your yeah. your league support structural mm-hmm. support yeah. and we're we're starting to see leagues like the WNBA and we'll talk about it come up with their new collective bargaining agreement pushing forward the rights of women athletes to have better maternity leave, better salary protection while they plan for a family, not just during the pregnancy and the delivery or the birth is the end date, but throughout that entire process, they have added additional supports. So we're seeing that now. We're seeing a lot of different moves. So let's talk specifics about this uh, this CBA. So it looks like there's some good stuff in here. Just came out in February. You know, and as we're going to talk about with our guest, Diana Redman. It's a step in the right direction, but we're, we're definitely not there yet. Um, so look, 
they're saying that players will now receive full salary while on maternity leave. Okay, that's good stuff. Like, that's something that um, it shocks me that it's taken until 2020 uh, to get there. Yeah, but, did, you, did you hear about reading Skylar Diggins? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the former Notre Dame stud basketball player. Yeah. She's in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. She was vocal about how the challenges she faced during her pregnancy. And she said she didn't tell a soul in the organization. And then she also, she, talk, she talked about how she actually played a few games pregnant. And eventually she had the pregnancy, gave birth, and said she struggled with postpartum depression. So this was all going on just in 2019. And these are the situations that went on that kind mm-hmm. of led to the yeah, emergence of yeah. this. I mean, these are the the events that inspired. So after this full salary while on maternity leave, you got a couple more things uh, I think are, are pretty important to, po- to point out. Child care stipend of $5,000, and that's uh, per year. So okay. you know, that's All not right. bad. Yeah. I mean, that's probably going to get you maybe maybe half, you know, something somewhere in there. But you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, you know? that, so it's a step in the right direction. It and, is. And this is part of a bigger CBA that also included pay raises for the WNBA athletes, amongst other things. Now they say that um, their top players can earn over a half million dollars per season. So, But a lot of people are pointing at this, the motherhood and family planning elements as the most important part of the, the WNBA's progression into the future. So yeah. shout out to the WNBA for moving in the right direction. Yeah, I wonder, uh, and this is actually an important one too, and I've, and I've heard this uh, in many different circles, workplace accommodations uh, that provide a comfortable safe and private place for nursing mothers. That's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have Diana Redmond on here talking about how she went through her own pregnancy while she was playing uh, professional soccer. Yeah. Uh, We won't spoil that, but these programs weren't around just three, four years ago when she was going through that. So it's it's great to see movement in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it it honestly amazes me. And I I never really thought about it, which is really the, the sad part, but it just I can't believe that that every organization doesn't have a private room for nursing mothers, you know, I mean, just for people that I, it, it's weird. I mean, I feel like in this day and age, so I, it's it's frustrating, and the WNBA is making a step in the right direction. Nike actually got a lot of flack back in 2019 that they were able to cancel sponsorships of their female athletes if they were going to get pregnant. So they had to make oh changes goodness. in that. Um, so they recently had came out with an update in 2019 that supposedly will cover 18 months throughout that kind of family pr- planning process, beginning at one month pregnant, lasting through uh, the delivery. So different organizations making changes in the right direction. Not sure if these are adequate enough or not, but let me ask you this, Armin. How come there's this stigma around pregnant athletes? Oh, wow. <laughs> that That is, it's a great question. Also, you know, somewhat of a, of a loaded question uh, in, in that really that's an issue for all pregnant women in, in the workforce uh, and, you know, just... Therefore, all people in the workforce, right? It's a big deal. Uh, and, and I think it's one of those issues, too, that you often hear talked about with respect to the equal pay conversation, 
and the pay disparity between you know men and women who you know, have the same positions. And I think that what I've heard, okay, <laughs> is that the pushback, the the other side of that coin, that conversation, is that because uh, over the the course of a career, I'd say you know thirty forty year career, what have you, a woman who let's say has you know two to three children uh, during the course of that thirty years would be potentially out of the workforce what a year two years you know if they take a, a standard six month leave term more longer than their standard? male counterparts right if they take a six month term and they do that maternity twice, leave maternity leave. And ultimately, for most jobs, you know, this is obviously a, a paradigm that's, shift, that's been shifting for a long time. But I think historically, you know, talking about like manufacturing jobs and, and just, you know, typical industry jobs, seniority, right, and availability and all of that, uh, those things, and, and, you know, obviously being with a certain company and staying with that company for years and years and loyalty and dependability, all those kind of things were like, those were the most important, some of the most important uh, performance measures, right? And so losing a year yeah. or more, particularly at critical points in your progression, you know, that could cause you to lose momentum. And then I think that, you know, it's all about timing, right? Being in the right place at the right time. Maybe you lose out on certain opportunities, you know, for promotion for a raise, whatever the case, but over the, you know, the long term, uh, maybe those, that time that you're out of the workforce, maybe that is a, a natural artifact, you know, that contributes to this pay gap. Um, you know, I've heard that articulated and I think that's something worth thinking about, but at the end of the day, I think there, there's something to be said of maybe even, really rethinking how we how we view even that disparity you know this whole kind of this whole issue of the deficit that that one may have as a result of being of having been out of the workforce for that period of time and and you know i i think that what we should be thinking more about nowadays is you know not so much about age or quantity of experience, you know, in terms of just time on the job or time in the position, but frankly, you know, just the quality of what you're bringing to the table, what you provide, you know, and frankly, if that woman is performing, right, and is as capable, and certainly if she's more capable than her male counterpart in that same position, it should matter that he's been there longer. Right. I, I mean, that, that's yeah. another way of looking at it, too. And I think that's a very, very strong argument as well. Yeah, I think the reason there's a stigma against female athletes or like you said, the stigma against just any female worker, you're pregnant for nine months. You're feeding another human being. You're giving birth. This is a strenuous, difficult process, not only mm -hmm. physically, but mentally as well. And it's very exhausting. And but it's time consuming. So the concern for an Athlete is obvious, like how are you going to play soccer eight months pregnant? Mm -hmm. How are you going to get re jump up and get rebounds six months pregnant? Those are the concerns. So you have to sit out for a period of time so you can't play. So that's I think yeah. that's where this, the main stigma comes from. Yeah. But there's also cultural components. What's concerning to me 
is that you know you, you have a player who gets injured. You know, we we talk often about you know your classic injuries like the ACL. Um, you know, but they're out with an injury for a significant period of time, and the team just sort of like wraps their arms around that player, you know, provides them with the best medical care and ensures that, you know, they're, they have a speedy recovery, a full recovery. And then more often than not, from what I've seen, you know, secure their uh, positions for coming back onto the team. Oh, and they provide them with additional supports. And yeah, and all of the above. I mean, and, and, and I've seen this, time and time again throughout my life as a, as a sports fan. And then here you have, you know, these situations in which, you know, a person elects to get pregnant. And it's like, in, you know, Diana's going to kind of talk about this, right? It's almost like they're treated like the black sheep, you know, of the team. And they're like, oh, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, well, you know, hey, um, Good luck with your pregnancy good and luck. have a good, good life. Good luck with that. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing. And we're going to touch on all this in the interview, but a lot of times in the past, women have had to choose between their career, their love, their passion of sport, and starting a family. And quite frankly, a lot of women in America feel that pressure to choose one or the other. And we're moving towards a society, which I think is progression, obviously, where you can do both. And there's almost as much responsibility with the man and fatherhood as there is with the mom and motherhood. This leads into family planning, Mm -hmm. which Diane's going to talk about, which her company helps with. It's a change for the father as well as the mother. It is, man. And you know what? One thing I love about sports is that we, I'm going to say we, we're we're part of sports nation. You know, we we are, we're often on the forefront of, you know, important social causes, right? And um, we, for example, most recently, you know, the NBA uh, took the lead role in terms of uh, setting the tone for how we should respond to this uh, COVID-19 crisis, right? And I think in similar fashion, like these sports organizations uh, should join with the WNBA and others and really start to take a lead role and be out front about protecting families, about supporting families, about uh, helping athletes to have families in a way that, you know, is, is about wellness, you know, is about high level of, of well-being. Oh, you yeah. want successful pregnancies you want healthy babies, you want happy families, Hel- you know? Yeah, healthy mothers and fathers. And that's going to contribute to better athletes, yeah. better performance. Hell yeah, dude. That's, that's exactly why we're here. We know the value of sports. We know the value that organizations, sports teams, elite athletes can bring to society. Oh, yeah. For better or for worse, a lot of individuals, those are, those are their idols. They model themselves after an athlete. So if an athlete says something, even better if a team, even better if an organization says something. And I think the silver lining for the NBA was that one of their players, or the silver lining for Rudy Gobert getting COVID was they had to make a stand right then and there. And they did. And and ideally, that's going to prevent a lot of future cases. So 
Yeah, we're all about the value of sports. So that's why we're doing this podcast to decrease the stigma through the lens of sports, through the paradigm. We're trying to change the paradigm. No doubt. So applause to Nike. Keep doing it, though. Keep pushing forward because I heard it's not quite good enough. The WNBA and now the, the National Women's Soccer League, they need to step it up. Right. Yeah. We'll get about in the interview, but we'll talk a lot about Sydney LaRue, who was on the 2012 Women's National Gold Medal team. Um, play it forward, by the way. Scored some goals. She said she spent more money on ba- babysitters and nannies for her kids than she made playing in the National Women's Soccer League. So for a lot, and, th- and this is someone who had a lot of success playing on the Women's National Team. So she has a lot of income. We're going to talk about this as well. These elite players especially for soccer, the ones that are on the national team, they get compensated. So maybe it's okay that they don't get paid by their club team while they're pregnant. But for the majority of players, this is their full-time job and they, they can't even take maternity leave no, without not right. fear of losing money. Yeah, and I, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of people would be surprised to know these things. You know, a lot of fans, you know, a lot of men, I think. And I, I think... That if a lot of people knew what was going on, uh, they would be more outspoken about some of these issues and, you know, be willing to to support change. Even on the U.S. women's national team, previously they just offered 50% of athlete pay during maternity leave. So they, they dock your pay during maternity leave? How is this still going in 2020? And that's interesting because the U.S. women's national team is in the middle of a lawsuit right now. Um, right. For, yeah. To the U.S. Soccer Federation because they want equal pay, and they want and they deserve it. Yeah, and they want that same marketing budget because then they'll get even more popular. That team, I think we've talked about this. Those girls, that team, those athletes, they are that's a beacon of hope for our entire country, for the entire globe. Absolutely. They, people all over the world. They've improved women's soccer all over the world. They've improved soccer all over the world. So many more women athletes are going, are going into soccer now because of them. Speaking of Shout beacons out. of hope, beacons of hope, Serena Williams. She's okay. a boss. Right. Maybe the greatest... I don't know if it's maybe. Goat female I mean, athlete of all time? Well, I was going to say, I thought you meant uh, tennis Ten- player. Well, yeah, tennis she's, is, she's yeah. absolutely that, that one. Um, but she's in the conversation for sure. Greatest, one of the uh, greatest athletes, and for me, she's yeah. the greatest. One of the greatest. Athlete. Well, one of the greatest athletes. She's just of all an time. icon. She's just. She's just. She is an iconic figure. One of the few that transcends sports. Yeah, and uh, she, of course, won the Australian Open. You know, one of the the four Grand Slams. How many in times? Tennis. One of the four Grand Slams in tennis, uh, while she was eight weeks pregnant, and she's made it to to four Grand Slam finals since giving birth to her beautiful daughter in 2017, which she actually, you know, it's well-documented, delivered her by emergency C-section. I think we talked about it on one of these podcasts, but a C-section is not a very pleasant surgery. You lose a lot of blood, and it's it's tough to to bounce back from that physically. It's pretty gory. Yeah. So you got to be a part of those in medical school. Yeah, no. It's, it's a, yeah, it's actually a lot more PTSD. Um, there's a lot more medical complications usually that arise with that versus a standard vaginal delivery. But I mean, when when but when you bounce back the way that like Serena did, um, you know, and, and how she did it, I mean, it's just so inspiring. I mean, it's like how can you how can you really 
look at a, a pregnant athlete the same way again. Well, hell, let's, when we're talking pregnant athletes or women, we're talking about performance in women. I'm thinking about Beyonce during the halftime show in the Super Bowl, what, two, three years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's two kids out there crushed just it. killing it. She's an athlete. So, oh, come on. Yeah, absolutely. More than an athlete. Oh, and then this past super year, J-Lo and Shakira. Oh, come on. God. Oh, man, that Those was... Those are athletes. Or it's entertainment. I don't know if we call them athletes. They're I mean, entertainers. Performers. It's a, it's a performance. Performers. It's a hell of a performance. That, those are physical performances. What more can I say? Yeah, those are physical performances. So yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually. So yeah, there's this stigma with women athletes. And how, how can that be? At this point in the game, you know, the way that, that women you know, re- have represented you know, this country on, on you know, a global stage let alone you know, on the national level. So let me, let me check this out. So people would argue that being pregnant is going to worsen your ability to compete, your athletic ability, your physical abilities. Not, not necessarily. So there's actually, they're doing stud, a lot more studies on this now because this wasn't even a question five years ago. We're slowly going in the right direction. But they're actually saying that being pregnant can actually have a positive effect on athletic performance. You get increased blood volume higher pain tolerance, and a better ability to access the parasympathetic nervous system, which is good for managing stress. So if you're doing those things better when you're pregnant, maybe it could help with athletic performance. But the main part of this is that there are researchers now studying athletic performance in, in women to see to actually see is this actually detrimental or if you're an organization, a team, a league, and you protect these players, you support them through this process, Maybe they become better athletes for it. They have better performance for it. And they're obviously going to be more well when they have the support of their employers and their teammates and their coaches. Definitely. That's what it's all about, man. You know, it's a a family. And that degree of connectedness needs to be really across the board. The family, the team, the coaching staff, you know, the the whole, you know, organization needs to rally around that. Absolutely. So let's let's shift our focus to the mental health aspects of pregnancy and the postpartum period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, the the postpartum period uh, for those that find that word unusual sounding is the period of time immediately following birth, and then it lasts up till basically like the thirty day point. You know, a month in. Give and, or take. Yeah, give or take. And that window is extremely important, uh, I would say, because in that window, you, you know, you really kind of will see if most of the signs of whether or not it's going to be or is a healthy delivery, you know, healthy baby. And of course, most importantly, it's, you know, it's a bonding period. You want to be able to, you know, really be with your your baby and, you know, touch them and, you know, hold them and, you know, really do all the things that you can to, you know, have a, a close experience with them because that's what it's all, it's all about at that gotta stage. Got to get that skin to skin time. At that stage, you know, because they actually their eyes uh, and their, their visual acuity is fairly immature. And so they're really only kind of mostly seeing shapes and shadows. The first and, thing they can recognize their faces. So that facial recognition, specifically of the mother. Yeah. Some people say it comes within that first four weeks. Yeah. 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 Exactly. 
And and you you will see before long when when the baby has more more time where they're awake and alert, you know, and they're not just kind of feeding and uh, and sleeping, you know, they'll they'll start smiling within the first three to four months. They you know they'll smile at you that social in, smile in response to yeah in response to your your cues, you know, your changes in expressions and stuff like that, and and that's so important for bonding. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I would argue the postpartum period is definitely longer than a month, probably more like six months. It, yeah, if you really want to look at it the more, most uh, healthful way. So you got that bonding experience, you're the nurturing, the feeding. Don't forget the feeding part. That's, mm-hmm. a, takes, that's a physical toll and also an emotional toll because, quite frankly, latching can be difficult. So that has a, its own stressor. But not to mention the hormonal changes. Mm-hmm that occur during pregnancy and after birth. There's a lot of hormonal changes, and these are all, I guess, causes of the vulnerability in the postpartum period, but the hormonal environment changes. You have estrogen and progesterone levels go down, different things, and and they've done studies on this, obviously, and the, the thought is not every woman, not every individual is susceptible to this, but individuals who may be more susceptible to changes in mood and reactivity during their menstrual cycles they found out are more susceptible to these hormonal changes and maybe more susceptible to a postpartum depression or or period so there's more and more money going into the research of 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 these things and of what are the specific just like any part of psychiatry what's the reason behind this like why is this happening and there's no linear way to get to any point pretty much in psychiatry Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'll tell you, this is all such a big deal because they say that uh, up to 85% of women will have some type of mood disturbance during the postpartum period. So more often than not. Way more often than not. And you want to tell us about the three categories um, of, of this postpartum period? So yeah, like with many things we've discussed here in the past, this experience does have a range to it. There's a spectrum to how we differentiate the experience of postpartum pathology, and that starts with postpartum blues. So when we think of postpartum blues... Appropriately named. Yes, indeed. Um, You know, we think of like irritability, think of just kind of like that period where, you know, you may just kind of be feeling a little bit, you know, down in the dumps or, or maybe overwhelmed, it may last for like a few hours. And we see this a lot with like new mothers, yeah. um, you not, know, and just not kind quite of, in control of your emotions, tearful. Yeah. yeah you know, and uh, it probably goes in, in more of an intermittent kind of fashion and, you know, maybe last for a few days here and there. Postpartum blues will peak probably maybe the fourth or fifth day after delivery. And, you know, I would say that it's something that you you probably see commonly enough that I wouldn't be alarmed by that. It rarely results in a mother's losing their ability to function uh, normally uh, day to day. Yeah, you you mentioned the eighty five percent of women who struggle with a postpartum episode, and the majority of those women have postpartum blues, and it doesn't go beyond that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think if you're able to, to still you know kind of function day to day, do what you have to do, make sure that you know baby's taken care of, and and everything, I, I think that it's not something that you you absolutely 
have to reach out for professional support to intervene on, but perhaps reaching out to, like we said earlier, a family member or a friend, uh, you know, kind of just airing it out, talking it out, you know, get your feelings out there, making sure you're talking to people and, and not holding back. And, and that's why it's so important to have the support again yes. of the team and everyone, you know, in your corner back at work because the whole experience can be challenging and the more support you have, uh, the more people in your corner, the better it is for, for everybody and certainly for yeah. the, the, the health and well-being of the baby. Absolutely. Depending on who you talk to, their social support comes from one of three areas, work, friends, family. Mm-hmm. And then obviously extracurricular activities, church groups, different things. But those are the primary, three primary things. And for some people, their work group is their family. Maybe they don't have the most comforting home and that's where they get their social support. So that's what we're vouching for with regards to this. This is the moment individuals are vulnerable. And if you have social support, that's protective. Yeah, absolutely. God, so important, man. Um, yeah, and just you know, kind of wrapping up with uh, postpartum blues, you wouldn't expect for the symptoms to persist much longer than two weeks. And, and if so, then you may want to consider that things are transitioning into something worse. Yeah, and that would be the time to seek additional help. Mm-hmm. So what is that something worse? What's that next level, that 10 to 15% of women? The next level in this spectrum is uh, postpartum depression. And postpartum depression can be very concerning because when it comes down to it, you just you really don't get those days back, you know, those first days, the postpartum period we're talking about. Um, you don't get that back. And, you know, it's so important to be able to really connect with. Yeah, the first six months of life are yeah, extremely that, important yeah. to set up relationships for oh, the rest yeah. of life. So there's some psychologists who can go into a whole podcast about how those first six months and the relationship you have with your caregiver, which most of the time primarily is, is the mother, set the foundation for your ability to relate and socialize with other people in the future for your ability to be resilient. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of pressure there. And I, pre- I appreciate you building this, this narrative, but it, it sounds overwhelming. Well, it can be, um, but that's not how you, you want to interact or relate to the experience, right? You want it to be, uh, you know, a, a great experience. You know, you, you want it to be something that, you know, you never forget. And you want it to be one that, you know, that is most healthy for your baby, you know, for their development. Yeah. Some would say you just need to be a good enough mother, Mr. Yeah. Donald, Dr. Donald Winnicott. So, yeah, tell us about postpartum yeah. depression. So, it's, uh, it, this is essentially a condition that's indistinguishable from clinical depression. But, you know, we really think about it more in terms of the timing uh, of its occurrence as it relates to pregnancy mm-hmm. and, uh, and delivery in that postpartum period. And so we're talking about like, you know, the anhedonia, right? Where you, you know, you sort of lose interest and, and pleasure in the experience, right? Of, of, you know, motherhood and, and connecting with your baby. And, you know, and it's not just I mean, that, it's, you know, anything, everything around yeah. you, right? So it's the stakes, like you painted earlier, the stakes are a little higher because it's not only affecting the mother's life, but also the child's life and possibly the, the entire family. 
So, but this usually occurs within the first two to three months. It can occur at any point in time in those like first two to three months after pregnancy. And we're going to get into, don't worry, we're going to get into the treatments for this as well. So we're not, we're not going to leave you hanging out to dry, but. Yeah. And, and, uh, what we really get concerned about is when a mother who has recently delivered starts to develop evidence of psychosis, evidence of mania, right? Those kinds of things. And, uh, co- of course, you know, postpartum psychosis is what I'm referring to. And postpartum psychosis is, is a potentially very dangerous event, usually very dramatic presentation. The onset of the symptoms of postpartum psychosis, usually within the first you know, two to three days after uh, the delivery. And um, I would say what it's probably within the first two weeks, most women that are going to have postpartum psychosis will, will, have, de- will have developed symptoms. So it happens pretty early in the game. Yeah, um, so we're always vigilant of this when we have individuals who have a history of bipolar disorder because they're more susceptible to this postpartum psychosis than other yeah. individuals. And it has, it has a, a, a unique presentation as a, in terms of psychosis um, because uh, I would say that the presentation may actually more look like, like bipolar, the mania uh, or manic phase of bipolar in which there's a lot of restlessness, insomnia, you know, can't sleep, uh, irritability, you know, mood swings, you know, those kinds of things in the early stages. Uh, and then that sort of rapidly accelerates into delusions, you know, particularly like paranoia. I've, I've seen, I've personally treated cases where uh, the mother believed that uh, her baby was possessed by the devil. Um, another case where a woman believed that uh, her, her baby was in danger of being molested by her brother-in-law and yeah. just took off you know, in the middle of the night, you know, she lived in New Mexico. She ended up at UCLA Mm. emergency room. And unfortunately, a lot of times those delusional beliefs are centered around the infant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those two cases were just, you know, they're just so hard to forget. Um, they really, really stand out. Um, and, uh, you know, we get really concerned, particularly for the safety of, of the baby, you know, because, you know, some of these cases actually end up on the news, you know, where, you know, mothers have, you know, done horrible, horrific things to their babies when they've had these uh, psychotic delusions about, like, satanic, yeah. you know, possessive kind of beliefs and just weird stuff like that. Yeah, and that. I think the one thing people may not understand is these individuals don't have insight. They don't have the proper judgment. Their illness, this psychosis part of the disorder is that you don't know what's going on if it gets to extreme cases. The individual really does believe that Satan has infiltrated her baby. Mm -hmm. It is a true belief and it's fixed. It's a fixed delusion oftentimes with no insight into this could be something that's all in my head and not in reality. And that's what makes it so tough to treat any type of psychosis, any type of bipolar mania. These are the harder things to treat. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, this only occurs in approximately one, one or two people out of a thousand. So that would be 0.1, Thank goodness, yeah. Uh, but when it happens, you gotta you gotta be very careful. And like we talked about, you know, it doesn't start off with the bizarre stuff. You know, it starts off more just like somebody's kind of 
having a bad day, you know, and, and it turns it, into a couple of days. Or, and this one is a no brainer. Seek medical treatment right away. Yeah. Psychiatric treatment. Yeah. No time to waste. And, uh, and then we have, don't other, forget about anxiety. No, I mean, then we have anxiety and actually, um, cause this gets lo- lost in the fold with depression it, a lot of times. It does. It does. But it, it's, 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 it's kind of its own thing. Um, I, you say that you're not saying that with a lot of confidence. I want to hear your true opinions on this. Well, I mean, it's its own thing. It's not. We don't. We don't have like a specific diagnosis for it, like um, postpartum. But it's anxiety. an it's an experience that likely is sort of perhaps a you know uh, a an extension of a depressive episode or experience. But here's the thing about anxiety in general, particularly any chronic anxiety that in, that affects a new mother is that that can certainly negatively affect her baby's neurodevelopment because you know the, as we as we know with anxiety we've talked about before you know when you're ruminating right which is a key feature of anxiety your mind's sort of wandering and you can't stay focused and you're worried about a lot of different things uh, that's less attention that you're paying to your baby you know that's less focus you have on what's most important. And uh, we talked about before, and I'll reiterate, that bonding time, you know, is really critical. It's it's like modeling time. The the baby is modeling off your behaviors. But if we even bring it back to the pregnancy time, stress can cause neurochemical changes in your body. We've talked about on several different episodes about trauma and how anxiety and stress can ramp up the stress hormone cortisol in your body. So a pregnant mother who is always stressed, maybe always triggered into that fight or flight response, has high levels of cortisol, which begins to modulate and change the limbic system, the hypothalamus, different parts of our brain that are part of the fear response. And it becomes more trigger happy, more hyperactive. And that can actually be passed on to the baby through genetics, through epigenetics, meaning one of the mother's genes gets tagged over time and that tag continues on to the fetus and the baby hat is already predisposed to be a little bit hyperactive and more likely to go into that fight or flight response. And that can happen even prior towards pregnancy. Pregnancy itself, you could transmit higher cortisol levels to the fetus through the bloodstream and also amp up them that way. So that when they're already born, this is a gross oversimplification, obviously, but they're already ready to go. They're already in fight or flight. Hmm. Or they're already more prone to go into that, and they already have difficulties handling stress. Yeah, and I, you know, in the, in the postpartum anxiety is the kind of thing that can you know lead to difficulty with, for example, breastfeeding, and you know that uh, important kind of like process yeah. of latching on. Oh yeah, no, no different than depression or blues or mm-hmm. psychosis, but the anxiety aspects being studied a lot more now. Because you notice we it, we don't have our own specific diagnosis like you mentioned, but they're seeing that anxiety is just as likely as depression. It's separate from depression a lot of times. And they're seeing more obsessive compulsive disorder-like symptoms showing out in the postpartum period. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of biological susceptibilities to, with the hormonal changes. You're caring for a brand new you're human being and you have all this other stress going around you and you may not have the best support. So many different factors. And that's bringing it back to why we wanted to have a podcast like this to oh, yeah. bring it to light. And, and while we're on the topic, uh, we might as well just put it out there because it's really, really, really important. 
breastfeeding, right? Human breast milk, okay? There, there is no substitute, right? There, there's nothing even close on the market. Yeah. Yep. And it has much to do with the nutrients. Actually, the colostrum is something hard to, to mimic. And the antibodies, the physical properties of the milk itself, there's all these antibodies that you'll get from your mother through the breast milk that mm-hmm. ramp up that immune system, get you yeah. ready to go to fight off bugs, maybe in the future of things like COVID. But right. not only that. No, but, seriously. But it, doing it, the breastfeeding, absolutely. physically, mm-hmm. the latching, the skin-to-skin time, that's the bonding like you talked about. There's no other replacement. There's no alternative. Anything else you provide is going to be second rate. Yeah, It's positive reinforcement. Hear mm-hmm. me out. The baby crying fussy is hungry. That's the only way the baby knows how to communicate when they're really young yeah. is cry. Yeah. And then eventually, you're a father, you were able to determine the different cries based yeah. off the, the different need that your oh, kids had when they there's were There's no younger. doubt about it. No doubt about it. Yeah, there's one for when they're hungry. Uh, that's definitely different from you know when they want their diaper changed. That's also separate from when they're tired, you know, sleepy. And then there's usually a, a very different one from when they're in distress yeah. or pain. So yeah, there's, so, there's definitely cues. Yeah. So during that breastfeeding, crying because I'm hungry, if the baby's able to latch and feed itself and stop crying, that gives the mom a boost of confidence. I'm able to feed my child. And it creates this positive kind of reinforcement of that bond versus if the baby can't latch and continues to cry the mother sees that and can get frustrated and then you have reinforcement the wrong way and a fracture and a possible bond. So all these little things are, are beautiful experiences, but. And yeah. And listen, you know, I, I, I understand I me. Mean, some, some women uh, won't be able to breastfeed as often just because, you know, of their careers uh, and their schedules um, and that's fine. You know, there will be other opportunities to bond, other ways to bond, but the breast milk is essential. I mean, that's essential. Yeah, you can pump. And you got to pump. You got to pump. You, can, you know? I mean, sometimes if you can't, some women can't make breast milk. Yeah. Have the little skin, get, get your bottle, get that skin to skin time still. Get, it, get, get that, get yeah. That For those women, we cannot be insensitive uh, to, to those who are unable to produce breast milk. But yeah, that bonding time, uh, get creative with that. Take advantage of your biological tools. They're there for a reason. Yeah. So, And we're, we're saying all this really as a, just sort of like doctors endorsing the family and motherhood and just you know, being able to give your baby the very best. And one of the things that we learned in our, in our pediatrics rotations that you know, our attendings said we absolutely have to tell all of our patients, our, our women and girls you know, that we treat in the future is breastfeed or breast milk for at least six months, right? No less than six months, ideally a year, but I, you know, at least six months because that is really the most ideal for uh, the maturation of your baby. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's in enough time for two males talking about women women (laughs) athletes and uh, pregnancy. But before we get into, this is why we brought in an expert, right? This is why we brought someone who has that experience to open up our eyes because we, this is just all things we've researched and studied. We've never lived it. So before we jump into that, 
there's treatments, obviously. Therapy is the number one treatment when a pregnant woman is struggling with something, especially in the postpartum area, because when you're breastfeeding, you still have the risk to transmit the medications through the breast milk. Um, But for postpartum depression, we we always have to weigh the, the benefits and the risks, right? Like Armin mentioned, if you do have a depression, a blues, a psychosis, anxiety after pregnancy, that can affect the relationship with the baby and maybe be worse off than if you were to stay on your antidepressant during the pregnancy. So you have to balance the risks and the benefits. We won't get into the nitty gritty, but there's certain medications we like to avoid during pregnancy and like to avoid during breastfeeding. Um, In general, antidepressants are safe during breastfeeding. In general, they are. Yeah. And in general, when it comes to antidepressants, we like to start with the SSRIs because it's the most evidence for them. I almost, when I say antidepressants, I'm almost like solely thinking SSRIs. So I should probably clarify. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's it just, they're very safe and, uh, you know, they're generally well tolerated. So so we like them. And, you know, I, I've gotten to a point with SSRIs that... Um, Serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Zoloft. Lexapro, um, Celexa. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, there's all the goods, Paxil. Um, Paxil, though... I never prescribe it. We don't use that. In the, it, it is what it is. But a lot. It's, um, I'll tell you what, I, I do try to tailor the medicine to the person by way of like understanding the overall effects of the medicine, not just the immediate effects and positive effects, but also the side effects and unintended mm-hmm. kind of effects. And, you know, I kind of try to put it together yeah. uh, in like a matrix in which I figure out what works best for them in terms of the experience they want to have and what makes the most sense for their lifestyle. That formula usually works pretty well. They're, they're pretty well tolerated. And I think that they also are the types of medicines that are, are quite compatible with an athlete's lifestyle and, uh, you know, are very unlikely to affect performance. I know that's something that's very important to athletes in particular, you know, and so that's something that we wanted to, to make clear is uh, SSRIs are very flexible medicines. Yeah, right. they work well for the athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we should also mention that for the more severe postpartum disorders like postpartum psychosis, Abilify actually works quite well. And uh, when you're beyond the first trimester, uh, and you, particularly if you're having a manic episode, lithium is, is something that can help. It can be yeah. helpful if it's well monitored. Yeah, lithium's probably the safest mood stabilizer in pregnancy, although they're not very st- safe. All right, yeah, no, we, ha- we have medications. Like we said, you got to weigh the benefits and the risks. So sometimes it's worth treating someone with a medication that has a side effect if the disease is severe enough to affect the individual and the, the offspring's life. Yeah, and I have pregnant patients. I have treated several patients through their pregnancies in the past. And, you know, I, I generally would say let's try to, to hold off on medicine if we can, you know, during the, especially during the pregnancy and, you know, try to do it more with lifestyle measures and with therapy. Yeah. Right. It depends on the patient, right? So what if you had someone coming in who was stable, stable on Prozac 40 for 10, 10 years, maybe five years, hasn't been off of it has been, and it's to treat their major depression disorder. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you do in that case? Well, uh, 
I would educate them. You know, I would give them, you know, the, the full scoop in terms of, um, you know, what the, the research shows, you know, what the evidence is and give them the decision to make and support that. However, if they were to hand me the decision or, you know, ask me for my best clinical judgment, then I would have to say, let's try to uh, maybe lower the dose to something that is, you know, maybe still going to help you resolve your symptoms and manage your condition, but maybe is less toxic for any potential hazards it, it may cause. If it were me, I would say, let's try to see if we can do without and maybe we transition to more of an, an as-needed treatment, right? If you're having like an episode of anxiety or something like that. Buspar is a medicine that I often prescribe for episodic uh, forms of uh, anxiety. And it works really well. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty safe. I'm surprised you've seen it, that it works well. I haven't seen that. I've seen a couple cases, but for the most yeah. part... Yeah, that of, hydroxyzine, very safe, okay. very yeah, safe. Yeah, it's safe. So I think what you're, what you're pointing at is the process starts with prevention. The process starts months, years in advance before the pregnancy. You, you do a little family planning. Mm-hmm. If you have oh, yeah. someone who you're, you're planning this with your patient years in advance, so ideally you can slowly taper off the medication and give them a time prior to pregnancy off the medication to see how they do. Meanwhile... Let me say that's not always the case, obviously, because there's a lot of unplanned pregnancies, so you don't always have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I definitely think that therapy should be a really important part of any mental health treatment plan for uh, a pregnant woman, you know, just in general, you know, helping them, if, if, even if it's something like coaching, right? Coaching them through what to expect. Um, Lamaze classes? Hey. Do you incorporate all that? Of it. You is that know, how you pronounce it? It's, it's all about support. And I you get the father involved. He, yes. Fathers don't get out of this. This is It's their job, too, to raise a kid. Maybe you're not going to give the child your antibodies through your, your milk, but you can be there. You can bottle feed. You can get that skin-to-skin time. Oh, you, you should. You can grow to have that bond and attachment with yeah. your infant. Yep. Yeah, man. But the, it's just that extra level when it comes to a woman because you hold the baby nine months. You already have that attachment. Mm-hmm. You feed the baby. You have that attachment. You have that togetherness already from the get go. So yeah. let's. And we have the uh, the pleasure of introducing our listeners to an athlete who uh, has been there and done that. Yeah. And speaking um, of family planning, she has her own program. She does. And they, they focus in on family planning. Yeah. Amongst other things. Yeah. So she is a retired professional soccer player. She played for the Israeli national team. She is also a dual threat in that she is a mental health professional. And she is a social worker who is in training to get her doctorate in clinical psychology. You know, she uh, has been a coach, has been a mentor, has been an advocate. She is a mental performance expert and she is a business entrepreneur she has her own company it's called Gabora through that company she supports women athletes who 
want to have a successful pregnancy and, you know, bounce back and still perform at a high level. And she consults on family planning, you know, and how to to really, I think, be a high-level performer and a high-level parent all at the same time. Also, she's she's a mother of a three-year-old daughter who joined us for a little bit on the podcast. It's adorable. Yeah. yeah, so we we got the pleasure of two guests. But yeah, no, we, we, we had a great conversation. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. I know you will. Do, do you feel me? But you and I actually had already started a little bit of a discussion, was it a few weeks ago, around this really interesting topic, the lack of support that female athletes have to deal with when it comes to pretty much anything related to like pregnancy uh, and yeah. even like postpartum support. Because one thing I was I was like really shocked by when I read your narrative was you said that you pretty much worked right up until you gave birth, right? And then, like, we're back yeah. to work, like, two weeks later. Yeah, you know, I was, I had such anxiety over, um, so basically I told my coach, you know, I'm pregnant, and I kind of expected the conversation to be like, oh, great, like, we'll see you when you get back. And it, it kind of felt like almost as if I had died <laughs> from their perspective. Wow. Uh, the coach wow. was kind of like, well, it, he was like, well, it was great to have known you on the team. Good luck. And I was like, what? well, I'm going to come back. And they were like, no, like people don't do that. Women don't do that. And I was like, well, they kind of do. <laughs> if you just give them a little support. So it was kind of an odd conversation at first. I don't think they really expected me to come back. You know, aside from one player in the Israel national team, um, the goalkeeper, I think she came back a couple of years later or took some time off. But I don't think they were prepared for a player to return not only so early and quickly, but returning breastfeeding still and returning um, with their child in tow. Um, so I think on both parties, nobody was kind of wow. prepared for that. Yeah. So it was kind of a big experience of learning, like, how are we going to do this? Um, me kind of coming in like, I want this. And they're like, we don't know what we're supposed to do. And, right. you know, there's no rules for this yet. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredible. So, but these were seasoned coaches and trainers you're talking about that had, worked with female athletes for a long time. So they had, uh, I assume, had some experience with this. Why were they so surprised that uh, you were thinking about coming back? You know, I think just in in general in Israel, athletes usually get pregnant and that's kind of it. I think for a lot of places, um, that's kind of the norm. Okay. Uh, Maybe there just aren't as many stories about these players you know, I think in, in Iceland, there are a lot of players who have kids and come back to the national team and that's pretty normal and they have a lot of support, um, you know, a lot of the, the Nordic countries too. Um, but just in Israel, it just wasn't really a thing. Okay. Uh, wasn't happening so frequently. So it was kind of a bit of a learning curve for everybody. And, you know, they didn't put anything in place after me. There wasn't like legislation like Diana did this. So now we got to change everything. You know, I wasn't I'm not the type of person that made a big stink about everything because I was kind of this is our first go with this. I don't even know what I'm supposed to have. So kind of like figuring out as I go and then realizing this could have been so much easier if there would have been just like one 
point person to make some changes and just to give a little bit of information and just psychoeducation about what's yeah. happening. So I can no, just go back absolutely. to normal. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I, I, it's interesting to me that um, you must have had peers that had gotten pregnant and had decided that that was going to kind of be, I guess, the end of their career. Yeah. What, what made it different? for you like what what was it about your situation that made you decide uh, you're going to take a different path um I'm not sure like there wasn't a specific moment I always felt that or it was put in my head as I was growing up like once you have a kid in sports that's it you're done so I think I always rode on that anxiety and fear of I don't want this to stop and I didn't know because there wasn't a whole lot there's for me to see the visibility of like, this is possible. So I didn't know it was possible. I didn't know what that entailed. And it was only until I started seeing, um, a lot of track and field runners. Um, there is a, her name was Sarah Brown. She was, a I don't remember exactly which event. I think it was the 800 or maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a, a quick documentary on her, a couple episodes. It was called run mama run where they documented um, her journey. She got pregnant and had to come back and try and qualify for the Olympics. It was unexpected pregnancy. And so it followed her journey, and it was really just inspiring for me that this is completely possible. Like, there's really no reason I can't, aside from, uh, you know, financial reasons. But physically, you know, the part of me actually training, coming back, and coming back to play on a physical aspect is completely possible. It's not something outrageous as people were kind of putting in my head. Um, so after seeing Sarah do that and also, um, there's another runner, Alicia Montana, mm-hmm. Montano, who, um, ran eight months pregnant. Um, I don't know if you remember who, Unbelievable. who that is. Yeah. No, I, I remember that story. <laughs> so she was a big kind of push for me also. And I reached out to her years ago, just, just, I was like, I want these people around me because I need that visibility and the reminder that this is completely okay. When you made this decision, did you decide, did you know that it was, uh, it was going to be two weeks after giving birth? That you'd be no, <laughs> no, I had no idea, um, what the timeline was going to be, but before I gave birth, I was very active. Um, I was very, I think the way I carried the pregnancy because I'm very tall, I'm six feet tall. Um, so, been told that's the reason why I carried the pregnancy maybe a little bit easier and I could have ran longer um, and trained longer. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. So I kind of just was like, okay, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But I stayed really active and I continued to train even in the gym just appropriately. I trained on the field um, and I just kept pushing myself. So when I gave birth, it was pretty... um, the recovery was quite easier for me, I think, because of that. Wow, this is a great story. So this is all while you're on the Israeli women's national soccer team? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the people that you saw as inspiration, and it sounds like you were also kind of on the the frontier of this or a trailblazer in your own right. I've seen recently in the news now that a lot of famous athletes are coming out about their pregnancies and their issues or how they managed it, like Alex Morgan, the soccer player, mm-hmm. Sunil LaRue, even Skylar Diggins, a WNBA athlete. So you're seeing more yeah. and more of this now. 
So it sounds like you were all on the frontier of this. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that people saw, okay, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not an Alex Morgan. I'm not a Sidney LaRue. I'm, I'm a, not a, a well-known player, but I'm still a player and I deserve to have the same rights, the same attorney, the same, you know, if this is my job, I should have some sort of um, Absolutely, yeah. you know, maternity option, leave, um, contract stability, something that's similar to when you have a job. If it's going to be considered my job, then it, it should have something attached to it, um, which usually for sports is not the case. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of athletes I'm talking about it now, and it's great because it gives players like myself and, and other players in the league who don't have that voice um, someone to advocate for their needs. You know, maybe Alex Morgan and Sidney Rue don't need the same financial support, but it's important that they say we still need this. It's really mm-hmm. it's important for women. It's important for moms. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's important for all the players who want that option. Yeah. So, currently, was this experience you had part of your motivation in becoming like a mental performance consultant and specifically working with? Um, athletes during their perinatal and postpartum transitions. Wait. My kid just jumped in the room. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Tell her, tell you okay? Or she yeah. just fell. Oh. Are you okay? Oh. <laughs> okay. Can you bring it That's to daddy. So adorable. No. Oh, you don't have to sleep, mama. Okay, let's see. But can you be quiet? Yeah. Oh. Okay. We'll see if you guys hear. <laughs> Well, actually, I think this might be a good opportunity to start from the beginning, um, and then we can kind of work our way through the present. Yeah. Um, so you were born in, is it Queens, New York? Queens, yeah. Queens, awesome. New York. Very cool. East Coast, yeah. <laughs> but you, you grew up in, in two different countries, right? You grew up here in the States, but then you were also in Israel. Yeah. So pretty much, you know, between New York and Israel, uh, you know, my younger years, definitely in Queens, New York. And in throughout the city, um, I like to say I'm a proud New Yorker, so I don't oh, ever yeah. give that up. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no I, I get it. That's it. Once you're a New Yorker, that's it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you're out in Los Angeles now, though. I know. I still remind people I'm a New Yorker. Okay. Oh, I, yep. No, we know. We, we, we have. You know, we talk about that in other podcasts, but yeah, I mean, it must have been interesting, you know, to, to kind of get the experience of having, you know, two completely different cultures as a young person. Yeah, it's definitely not only culture, but, you know, part of why I ended up playing in Israel, um, you know, I grew up in the U.S. soccer system, the ODP program, regional pool, national pool, um, never got to a space where I felt like I'm going to make the national team. But it wasn't the purpose for me playing. It was um, uh, when I was younger, I quit for quite a while and returned back to playing when I was in college. And the only reason I went to Israel is because an Israeli coach had seen me play and he realized I'm Israeli, I can also play for Israel. So mm-hmm. the kind of idea of playing for Israel was never in my head, but it would it was kind of the the best, I don't know, coincidence or, or most random thing that could have happened to me in terms of like playing. Um, you know, I'd never traveled. And when I talk about the players now that are f- dealing with the identity piece, this was a big part for me was being able to wrap myself up in soccer because I wanted to get away from a life that I was living outside of soccer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, Kobe kind of talks a little bit about that because he, he had, he had a similar 
upbringing in that he spent, you know, sort of half his life in Italy and then, you know, half in, in the States in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and how basketball was sort of an outlet for him, you know, in, in yeah. terms of his struggle to fit in. So it sounds like soccer is the sport that kind of took you the farthest, but looking yeah. here, you said you were part of the Olympic development program for soccer, but you also yeah. tell us about all the other sports you played. Yeah, I was a very competitive. So I was a competitive heptathlete and high jumper. I loved it. Um, I think of everything in my life that I wish I can go back and do again. For some reason, I wish I can return to being a high jumper and running. Um, there's something very individual and freeing about it. I just loved um, the same thing with speed skating. It was it was just you know being able to push yourself individually, <clears throat> individually on the on the track. Um, I loved it. I, you know, it put me in a space, my own zone, um, got me away from whatever was happening outside of myself. It just felt great. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I was very competitive in that. Um, you know, even throughout my whole career, my reasoning for wanting to do sports was, you know, I never thought I'm going to be the best in the world. I'm going to be the fastest or the score the most goals. It was, I want to be the best player I can be because I want to live this lifestyle where I get to play. And that's, that's the life I have. Um, and it's, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is strange for people when they hear that from me, because, uh, most people, Oh, I want to win the Olympics. I want to lift the UEFA trophy, uh, champions league. And it'd be great. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's of course something wonderful. Um, but for me, just every day being a little bit better or finding some sort of happiness in my day to day was super important. And soccer gave me that. Um, traveling, meeting new people. Um, it created a lifestyle that I really enjoyed. Absolutely. And, and at what point along the way did you decide you wanted to, to be a mental health professional and, and kind of like merge sports and, uh, and the mental health profession? Yeah. I, well, I think I realized that because it was less of I just want to win and more of this is good for my mental health, and this is keeping me sober and this is keeping me on a good track and I feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm making positive decisions. I think I understood just how effective sport can be for changing someone's life. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even mean on like, cause I want to win the, you know, a little kid wants to win the Olympics, but it can give confidence and just self-efficacy, just so many wonderful things by something so simple. Yeah, sp speak to that a little bit more. What what kind of um, values or or things did you learn through playing all these sports as a young kid and playing them through your uh, young adulthood? Yeah, well, you know, as in high school, I ended up quitting soccer, which ruffled some feathers with coaches. You know, you're going to be the next big thing, and you know, you're such a great player. But I was so unhappy mentally. I was just you know, as a 16 year old, 15 year old, I wasn't personally prepared for such a high level of competition. Um, you know, with everything going on in my household and in my life, it just wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, but of course at that age, I don't understand that. So taking a break from that gave me kind of perspective, you know, a break and to kind of go a little crazy, do some things I probably shouldn't do. Yeah. And then kind of come back to, this was actually really helping me if I do this in a healthy manner. Yeah. So kind of uh, like gratitude, almost like a, yeah. an experience in gratitude. You needed that yeah. reset in order to kind of appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Wow. And it kind of changes the way that I approach, you know, playing, you know, 
I played up until last year and, you know, I'm almost 36. That's a pretty long career. And people always ask, like, is it's not because I'm this great player. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to be in any record books or anything like that. But I've learned that I have become incredibly resilient. Um, mm. If I don't make a team, it doesn't bother me. I'm going to try it for the next one. Like, I'm going to work, 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 work because I know somebody else is going to give up. Wow. Or somebody else maybe doesn't win, and that's going to be enough for them to kind of quit. And then I'm going to be right there. Um, yeah, because you had a, a pretty significant career. I mean, at least was it a decade? Yeah, um, yeah, over a decade, yeah. Wow. So wow. you mentioned resilience and being resilient. That's one of the attributes you you have and the reason why you've played up until you were 36. Tell yeah. us a little bit about kind of what makes you resilient, if you can answer that question. Yeah, I think it's both in personal life and in soccer. You know, they obviously reflect each other. But I think when you get to a place where it's more of like post-traumatic growth rather than this is something that can debilitate me or I had these experiences when I'm young, so therefore it's always going to affect me in the future. But learning how to turn that and say I've had this unfortunate experience, but but I'm able to foster some confidence. I went through this and I'm going to push through the next thing that happens. And just being persistent in that idea, that really helped me, you know, your, your team's not winning, but I'm still going to play a, a thousand percent because I know my goals are different than the other girls. I, I want to keep this lifestyle. I want to, you know, for my mental health. Um, yeah. That's there great. were a lot of things, you know, involved. So you, you had your own set of like internal values that weren't tied to the, the wins or losses or the results on the playing field. It was, you had your own reasons yeah. for playing and that, that's what motivated you. Yeah. You, you were playing for the, the national team all the way up until last year? Or? Yeah, I'm trying, not, uh, I believe our last game... It might have been in 2018, actually, okay. but I was training this past year with, you know, the plan was, OK, maybe I'll return to the NWSL here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, playing with the ideas of, of stuff because, you know, I still wanted to continue playing. Had, had you played in the NWSL before? Um, in I had a little stint in 2014 with the Houston Dash. OK. And then after I had my daughter, um, I said, OK, you know, I'm back in the U.S., let's start to think about league again um, and one of the issues that I saw even in that league was there's really not a whole lot of support for athletes that do have kids mm-hmm. um, so it was kind of like a big eye-opener to me because I understood you know I don't have this big contract I don't have these um, you know Nike and Adidas uh, supporting me in other ways mm-hmm. so it kind of made me step back and really rethink is this a smart move financially for me and that's also another reason that I actually retired from the Israeli national team was a financial situation also because it became so expensive for someone to watch my daughter while I went for, you know, 10 days to have two games or something yeah. like that. Wow. Um, I, you know, the last campaign that we had, we had two games uh, where it was a, t- a 10 day campaign and I think it costs, I mean, almost like $800 for the daycare. Wow. Uh, it was it was very very expensive because you know it was I just needed ten days I had to find somebody. Or, That's too bad. That's so unfortunate. Um, and then in return, you know, for the pay that I would get, it's I'm losing a lot of money because the pay I think at the end with taxes was maybe a hundred bucks. 
So it's not even close Mama. to covering Mama. daycare. Mama, I want a snack. Okay, okay. <laughs> She wants a snack. <laughs> she wants a uh, snack. Hey, it's snack time. <laughs> All right, we got fishies going. Nice. All right. So I, what I wanted to ask was, you're a full-time professional athlete, and currently, like we mentioned before, you're you're this mental performance consultant here. You have your own private practice here in Los Angeles. Like, tell me a little bit about how you did that transition from being a professional athlete, uh, living partly in another country, mm-hmm. and yeah, what was that transition like? What inspired you to make that transition? And yeah, what brought you to where you're at today? Yeah, so, you know, I've always worked in mental health while I was playing, um, whether it was, um, you know, drug and alcohol addiction counseling or working in, you know, like a young adult facility. Um, I think for me, I wanted to wait till I knew I'm retiring so that there would be consistency, obviously, with clients. And that if I'm seeing someone weekly, that's it. I'm able to be there for them and not be thinking I have to fly I need to go to training, Um, you know, the focus that I would put on playing, I need to put on the actual private practice and the clients that I'm seeing, because I clear like 100% believe that they deserve that, because that's what I would want as a, as an athlete and as a client. So I wanted to wait until I was closer to, okay, this is official. Now I can devote all this time. And I think up until then, I was honing all the skills and just waiting for that transition to kind of be fully complete. Which over the past year I've managed to finally, <laughs> finally break away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you officially retired from soccer? Officially retired, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will still play, but I'll, I'll officially retire. <laughs> okay. And and how's that transition been? I imagine for someone who's been playing sports your entire life, it, it's been difficult. Yeah, it, it. I think because I was focusing on other things while I was playing. Um, you know, working on my degrees, um, working in facilities, um, you know, being a therapist. um, It made for the transition much easier because I have been invested in another aspect of my life for quite some time. Okay. Um, You know, some of the athletes that I do treat, you know, at the end of retirement, it's kind of like, what now? I haven't been focusing on anything else. And now I need to figure out pretty quickly, what am I going to do? Um, do I go back to school? Do I just get any kind of old job? Do I, who am I? You know, there's a lot that happens in that process. And I think I was fortunate enough to have invested in something along with playing. So that's great. That's one of the things that we've talked about before. And we we've seen is if you prepare for retirement, essentially during the beginning of your playing career, you're going to be a lot better off. So it sounds like you always had an eye. You were always looking into the future thinking yeah. about what you wanted to do when you retired. Yeah. And there's a um, organization actually here in Los Angeles. They're called Athlete Soul that they help athletes from early on in their career till even after it's coaching and mentoring. It's just the whole process of retirement oh, that's um, cool. for elite athletes. Yeah. So if you have time, check out their site. Absolutely. Awesome. Now, what types of, of athletes would be, I guess, the ideal type of client for, for Gibora? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's pretty open, even though, you know, I've been working now to kind of 
tailor a little bit um, over the next couple months to make it more accessible to different types of people. But um, originally it started out as uh, I'm a pregnant athlete and I want other athletes to understand some of the things you might experience. Um, and as I started to do that, I got into different aspects of perinatal and postpartum support. So I dove into family planning. Um, I think uh, I it's great. Okay. For athletes to understand, um, okay, you know what? I'm not going to carry the baby. My spouse is going to carry. What does that mean for my career? You know, should I freeze my eggs? Uh, it's early in my career. I know I don't want to take a break during my career. I've made that decision. What does that mean to freeze your eggs? Um, what is that process for IVF? Um, how much does that cost? Should I start saving now? Um, you know, there's some tax information um, that they can look at putting into a, a health savings fund so it doesn't get taxed and they can use it towards you know, IVF or something like that. Um, absolutely. Obviously, de- depending on what state you're in, you know, there's all these other. Yeah, that's great. States, yeah, but, absolutely. Um, so along with that, and I started to look at, okay, it's not only um, the person carrying the baby, it's also mm-hmm. the spouse and it's the family system, um, you know, that's affected by all this. And it could be that, you know, let's say uh, NFL player, um, he's obviously not having the baby. Maybe his wife, who's not even an athlete, gives birth and then experiences postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis, something that affects his playing. Um, So it's also important to include all the spouses in all situations, uh, scenarios Mm -hmm. that could. Yeah. Now, now, Gibora, you you guys just have like uh, private uh, personal clients, right? Tell us a little bit about Gibora because I'm I'm sure people are familiar with that. So it's, it just last year, I kind of started it as a way to connect with um, athletes, private clients, um, you know, put some information and then also get them connected even with other people in the community, um, you know, pelvic floor specialists, other mental health care specialists, if they're needing something more than that. But uh, the focus was perinatal and postpartum support. So athletes who might be thinking of having during their their season or they don't know how to plan it out, what are some things I should think of? Um, they're great clients because we can talk about all those things, not only from a sports psychology standpoint, but from psychoeducational, um, what's going to happen hormonally after uh, I give birth? What if I'm on bed rest because uh, I'm having twins? Um, you know, I had a client that she had multiples and her training was completely cut because she had to be on bed rest. Awesome. Now, are you also able to provide mental performance consulting services to these athletes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big part of what I do. I'm oh, sorry. Let me. It's okay. <laughs> Is she playing any sports yet? I know, she right? She loves to run. Really? She loves Ooh. running. I'm obsessed with it. So I'm really stoked to see how right. that's going to take. Okay. Maybe a future right. soccer player. I'm just going to let her sit on me. So. Yeah, of course. If yeah. she wants. I'm, I'm open to whatever she wants as long as I, – I really want her to do sports because I think it's really just great for um, young girls anyway. But she can play whatever she wants as long as yeah. she does something. <laughs> yeah. She's moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. I hear that. Okay. Sorry. So let me go back. Um this program you have, it seems like it's a great resource for not only female athletes, but for any athlete who is trying to have a family or make yeah, a family. Yeah, do family so, planning. Yep. Yeah. And there, you know, I think a lot of it also too is helping uh, players advocate for what they actually need. I would love for it to get to a point where athletes can have the open discussion with the team that they're signed with or their coach and not feel 
like they need to keep everything a secret. Um, unfortunately, we're not quite there yet in a lot, pretty much most of the leagues, the women's leagues, out of fear of losing contracts or um, it's just no protection. But, you know, setting a really solid plan to reduce anxiety surrounding, like, I want to breastfeed. What does that look like? Is that possible in my sport? Breastfeeding in soccer is going to be different than, you know, if you're a, a marathon runner um, or yeah, if you're a contact sport, you know, all these things come into play. And if you have zero idea about that, um, and then let's say midway through the season, your coach, you see that it's affecting your performance and you're like, okay, I'm just going to stop right away without knowing that when you stop breastfeeding, your hormones change, you can experience again, depression, you know, and your mood can change. You can be affected quite significantly if you're not aware of that. Um, so that can affect, um, your season or, you know, Something yeah. like that. Your coach might say, "Well, you're just not performing well." Well, of course, I'm, I'm experiencing <laughs> a big change that I wasn't prepared for, or I didn't even know was going to happen. Um, I just didn't have the knowledge. Yeah. So I yeah. think those things are important for athletes to understand before they just simply, "Okay, I just got to stop this right away, and then we're good." Yeah, I, th- I think what you're doing is not only a good resource, but it's advocacy for. It sounds like a needed area for athletes and, and female athletes uh, yeah that perinatal and postpartum times can be a vulnerable time for female athletes so it's important to have kind of these discussions and try to get everyone on the same page knowing that you're not okay you're not gonna your playing time's not gonna get cut your contract's not gonna get cut because i know i think you you kind of turned us on to what the WNBA recently did with their collective bargaining agreement just i think in february yeah yeah, and that was pretty significant. I mean, just for women's sports, it was a massive, just, I mean, like, really, just thumbs up. It, it was great to read. You know, I don't know the exact specifics. I haven't actually seen the CBA. I've seen, like, the bullet points of mm-hmm. what they advocated for and what they've kind of gotten. And I'm sure maybe it needs some more adjusting, just like everything. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a really great first step in showing other leagues, um, okay, we're treating our athletes we we want to invest in their future. We want to invest in their play. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Skylar Diggs experiencing, you know, postpartum depression. And just what she experienced from that, um, she was kind of like in hiding about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and thinking about someone who has depression, not only depression, but is taking care of a child and is an athlete. I mean, to feel like you have to be in hiding about it. I mean, she must have been. That's a really tough situation. Yeah, I actually, uh, I read that she was, she hit her pregnancy, so she was playing even when she was yeah. pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Was, oh, man. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, sacrificing a lot of what could be medically dangerous, you know, situation, because your livelihood depends on it, you know, in a way, if that's, if that's your only job, it's, it's pretty serious. And so, you know, we have to treat athletes with respect, uh, especially female athletes. Some are going to get pregnant. I mean... They're no different than just regular females. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and having having gone through that, uh, you know, having gotten pregnant, been counseled by your your coaching staff about the unlikelihood that that you'd be able to bounce back. Um, yeah. But training the way you needed to train, you know, uh, gaining that inspiration from those those athletes that had come before you, uh, and then ultimately putting together and being able to to, to come back, and you you. You were back on the field, I think you said six weeks later after you gave birth. And um, what a tremendous story, what a tremendous experience. What advice would you give to the women out there, the athletes out there who are at, 
a high level competition, you know, professional mm-hmm. level or what have you, and and they're saying, hey, I want to get I want to get pregnant. I want I want to start a family. I want to have a family of my own, but I still want to be able to perform at a high level. Like, what one piece of advice would you give to them uh, that would be most critical uh, to mm-hmm. their success in, in bouncing back? Yeah, I would say have flexibility. I think the biggest part of the postpartum recovery and return to play is that it's not a one size fits all. And that can be hard for both parties, not only like the coaching staff and the player, of course, everyone wants to get back as soon as possible. But, um, you know, there's things that happen. You can have a C-section and then you're delayed. You could have, um, you know, maybe you have um, a late pregnancy loss and that also affects you in a way that, you know, you've just lost a season and maybe you don't know what the future is going to hold. You still have to do a regular recovery as if you've given birth. Mm -hmm. And you're also dealing with possible mental health issues now of grief and, you know, PTSD and, and loss. Um, so try to be flexible of what it's going to look like. I know that we see, um, you know, Sydney LaRue's journey is different than Serena Williams' journey is different than my journey is different than what Alex Morgan is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't try not to get too caught up in, well, that person did it in six weeks. Why can't? I, and, and if I'm not going to do it in six weeks, this is not going to work or I'm going to get cut. Um, yeah. And that can be hard when you have a coaching staff that isn't being transparent or maybe you don't have the security of a contract, but try and keep in mind your health, your safety. Um, you know, always speak with the doctor to make sure that you can return as quickly as you want. <laughs> it's such an inspiring yeah. story. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it's, it, I can see why it can be extremely anxiety provoking, and it's it's good to it's good to hear your story about how kind of you persevered even though there wasn't this these structural plans in place like the WNBA has put in place. But it's I guess it's promising hearing your story. It's also promising. I read I kind of did a deep dive and saw that Nike last year made a change in their policy with regards to not being able to cancel any contracts when an athlete yeah, says they're going to be pregnant. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure from um, Allison Felix, but a lot of pressure on Nike um, as well. I'm not sure what they actually changed. Their statement was a little bit vague for me. I don't know if they came out with another one, but the one I saw was pretty like, uh, okay, that doesn't really yeah. <laughs> do it for me. But <laughs> but there are a lot of companies now that are coming out and supporting you know, high-level athletes, um, smaller companies that are like, we, we fully support and we're, we're going to make sure you're covered and, and we want to help them, not only mom athletes, but just moms. It's yeah. really important. And I think for better or for worse, when you see these big time athletes like Serena Williams, like winning majors when while pregnant, and then oh my God, winning yeah. multiple, like yeah. going going to Grand Slams yeah. right after giving birth, this is this is going to help the public realize well, the pregnancy isn't going to slow these athletes down. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, ultimately, it's just the right thing to do. It's, it's the right thing to to get behind. I mean, we want to as a society, as, you know, as a sports community, we want to get behind families, you know, we want to be supportive of having great families and and building great communities, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and and it starts with having programs that are, that are are supportive and, and that enable the process, you know, to happen the way that it should happen. So, yeah, this is, this is great. This has been really fun to talk to you and we really appreciate you sharing your your story (laughs) Uh, well, thank you for uh, 
for hanging out with us. Yeah. Let our listeners know where they could find more information about your practice. Yeah. So I have listed, I have two sites, dianaredmond.com and then gibora.org. It's G-I-B-O-R-A dot O-R-G. Um, so dianaredmond.com will just give general information about like, you know, the, the mental health side of everything I do. The other site is going to go more for the athletes, um, family planning, pregnancy, perinatal and postpartum support, things like that. So feel free to check either of them out. And, you know, I'm always open for emails or phone calls if you just have questions. Um, no, we love it. Absolutely, and, man. Stories of resilience. And that's, are that's you, what we're all about. Are you limited to just helping people in the Los Angeles area or is this something where it's more of a... Oh, no, I can, uh, you know, I work with uh, players in outside of the U.S. and other countries, um, some okay. American players that have gone abroad to play, um, and some Israeli players in Israel, you know, awesome. just, they want a little bit of like, hey, I remember you, you had a baby. <laughs> that was cool. I want to do that one day. <laughs> That's great to hear. Well, yeah. I, um, I bet this story's definitely been inspiring, and we appreciate uh, having you on, Diana. Thanks for your time. Thanks so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for your time. All right, so let's, let's end, end the stigma. stigma. And continue the conversation. Awesome. All right. <laughs> thanks All right. for coming on. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, it's been great. Tell you feel.